Hey, everybody, and welcome back to episode 11 of Backs of All Trades podcast. I'm with my first ever in-person guest. This is Chris Klaus. He's an entrepreneur, philanthropist. He does a lot with startup accelerators at CreateX, which is his startup accelerator program at Georgia Tech that he basically started. We both attended Georgia Tech. You have a bit of an interesting story when it comes to that, which we'll get into in a little bit. Uh, But we're at his beautiful home in his backyard right now. Chris, I just want to thank you so much for coming on, and it is an honor to not only call you, you know, a guest of the show, but also a friend. Awesome! Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here and uh, look forward to uh, having our conversation. Yeah. So Chris is probably most well known for founding a company, which he actually started is a passion project. Was it in high school that you officially started Internet Security Systems, or when was V yeah. version zero point one? 0.1, I would say probably my my interest in cybersecurity started in probably middle school up until high school uh, and was coding up uh, a program that would automate what hackers do. And that was high school. And it wasn't until college that I released it for free. And then I had so much feedback going, hey, have you thought about commercializing it? And then that was like the light bulb that kind of that one question put me on a totally different trajectory. Yeah. So Chris founded a company called Internet Security Systems, and we're not going to go too much into the story today because it's one I'm sure you've told many times, Um, but it is a phenomenal one. I suggest everyone go check it out. And uh, he actually ended up leaving Georgia Tech before finishing his degree to go pursue that. And it turned it into a unicorn, right? That's every startup founder's dream is to turn it to a billion dollar company and then was later even acquired. And so um, we'll talk about that a little bit later. But uh, I want to ask you, what do you actually introduce yourself as if you're meeting a stranger for the first time? Hi, I'm Chris Klaus and, you know, cocktail party. What do you say? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, normally, I'm, I, I'm Chris Klaus. Uh, if we're talking about what do you do? Usually it's like I'm involved with technology. I'm an entrepreneur and now investor and uh, really trying to create a, a startup ecosystem. Very cool. Uh, so the first sort of question I wrote down here, because there's a lot of stuff I want to cover, is that a lot of people today, uh, especially on my platform, I talk a lot about my experience at Georgia Tech, how valuable it was to me. I'm now a software engineer, and I credit a, a very large portion of my success at my young age to my education at Georgia Tech. We have different stories because you obviously ended up deciding to go pursue your company as opposed to finishing your degree at Georgia Tech. And many people today uh, with rising costs of colleges and uh, a number of different factors, whether it is you can make money online, will hear the term college is a scam or maybe that college is a dated system. And so I'm wondering as someone who didn't actually end up finishing college, what would you say to those kids who uh, hear the college is a scam sort of statement? Uh, I think a lot of it really comes down to what colleges, some of them probably are scams. So I would, I would just say, you know, do, do the research to find out, uh, you know, what kind of acceptance rate of, uh, or job, what's the, when you graduate, you can usually ask, you know, what's the percentage of kids that are graduating? What jobs did they get? What's their average salary? And I know when you look at Georgia Tech and probably any engineering school or computer science school, uh, that degree is not something you can just typically get off the internet. That's a pretty hard degree to get. And so you see that there's a uh, a high demand for those students. So I would say in that scenario or those graduates, that there's a real payoff to go to college for that. 
Yeah. So that, I mean, that's, it rings true. That's what I always recommend to people as well. I say that, uh, you know, long days are over of essentially going to study something that you just maybe are super passionate about at a school that's you know, 60, sometimes even $80,000 a year. And I tell them like, you should go actually look at the return on investment of these degrees. Go look at what type of jobs you can get with the degree that you're pursuing, uh, because that ultimately is going to determine whether you think it was a scam or not. Because again, you know, Georgia tech is ranked, I think number one in terms of ROI for a public university. And so it, to call that a scam, it's more of an investment. And then you also get a lot of other stuff with the education. No, it's a huge investment. And quite frankly, going to a university, uh, a lot of the the value is is not just the education, but all the other peers that you're you're meeting, your your fellow students and faculty and one and that's one of the reasons why I've kind of gone back to help try to enable more entrepreneurship at the college level is there's just an immense amount of resources, whether it's hacker spaces or builder spaces where you can 3D print your your product. Or if you have questions about almost anything, you'll find some professor who's studied it, researched it. And so you, you, you can't get that anywhere else. So I think uh, it's definitely a, a worthwhile investment to go uh, attend college. Yeah. I remember I was talking in one of my videos and I said that when you do go to a school like Georgia tech, and obviously we're a bit affiliated to Georgia tech. So that's maybe why we're talking about Georgia tech specifically. But I mean, I had professors who were inventing new fields of study who had written the textbooks that were taught all across the country of that particular course. Right. And so the, the pure human capital that you have access to, in addition to obviously like the literal capital in the form of uh, whether it is create X or the maker spaces, but, uh, the human capital component, I think you can't really get that online in any capacity, or at least it would be much more difficult. I also think there's an alumni network that when you're trying to get a job somewhere, if you can look up like who from this your university uh, is inside this company or trying to build, try to get uh, access to a different department, et cetera, it, it helps to be able to rely on your uh, alumni. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, your involvement at Georgia Tech is far and wide. Uh, and I actually, so uh, Chris Klaus donated uh, money to actually fund the new building uh, for the College of Computing. And I lived in a fraternity house that was, right next to it. Right. And I yeah. took many classes in it. So it's so cool to be sitting down with you today. Um, and you know, I could literally s sit and s saw the Klaus advanced computing building every day, but, uh, what you're probably most well known for at Georgia tech and your involvement specifically is what we've already alluded to a number of time, which is create X, which is the student startup accelerator program. Sure. And, uh, I encourage everyone to go look it up. It's a program that's actually tr essentially being replicated, uh, you know, and many places are at least trying to, or even you were just telling me that you're trying to do it in uh, other countries, even at places, universities like AUB. Um, my question is, as someone who was a successful entrepreneur, why do you put so much importance on helping students and entrepreneurship as opposed to just say going into like VC or funding already successful companies with proven founders? Yeah, it's a good question. It really is more of an origin story for myself in that that's when I wanted to do a startup or started down the path. And uh, it's kind of, they always say, kind of look, if you are going to do a startup, find problems that you can relate to. So I was like, these were the problems I had, you know, when I was trying to do a startup at Georgia Tech, um, I had nobody to talk to, like who could spell startups then. And, uh, you know, I was like, 
just trying to figure out what what would I need to be successful. And so that's kind of what we replicated within CreateX, going back saying, is it, you know, time? You know, as you know, trying to find time for a startup is almost impossible at Georgia Tech. So we ended up doing something, I think, pretty innovative. We actually hacked the uh, internship uh, process. So we ended up talking to the internship uh, office and said, hey, if a student has their own startup, can we consider that an you know actual internship? And they they agreed to it. And it's actually a pretty interesting backdoor for students to find time, keep their student visa, especially for international students. Um, and uh, you know we've also solved funding, mentorship, uh, all the course cur- curriculum. There's a whole bunch of things that I wish they had had at Georgia Tech. So we've we've implemented, and that's that's really what's uh, enabling a lot more students to take the risk. And I also think um, if you look at where you are in life, I would say the highest risk is like later when you have a stable job, you're married, you have kids, you have a house, you have car payments, everything else. It's really hard to go, you know what, let me take six to 12 months and bootstrap this startup from the ground versus when you're a student and you spend your summer working on your internship slash startup, your biggest risk is at the end of the summer, if it doesn't work out, you just continue your education. You're, you're no worse or no worse off than a, a, a typical internship. And so you're going to learn a lot doing a startup during the summer, working on uh, whatever problem you're passionate about. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great pitch for CreateX. I think it is a, a truly novel program. I took, it was not the actual startup launch, but um, for my senior design, uh, which is the culminating you know, course that you take at Georgia Tech for computer engineering, there was an option to take the CreateX one. I took that. I had so much fun with it. Um, turned out that my group mates were maybe not the people I would have ended up being startup founders with, but uh, as an aspiring entrepreneur, I think that I did learn so much during that. And actually, I was just curious because I'm sure you have some numbers off the top of your head. How many companies does Georgia Tech produce now annually? And um, even there's been some unicorns in the past year uh, as well, right? Sure. Um, great question. I think, uh, so I've been building this platform now called Fusion, and it's going to be an overlay with CreateX. And uh, if you want to check it out, that would be kind of a starting point for a lot of students to sign up. Ultimately, those numbers for like Georgia Tech, so it's over 100 startups a year, and we've had over 500 I think now over 600 startups go through the uh, program. I'd say if you make it through the summer, half of them continue to work on their startup. So I would consider that a pretty good success rate of getting in there, finding your passion about it, and still wanting to continue finding out whether you like your co-founders, uh, is this the right problem, et cetera. Um, and and uh, you're right, there's been uh, some unicorns that have come out of it. And there's a bunch of, you don't have to have a unicorn. So, you know, even if you have a, a $10 million business, $20 million business, it that's that's huge for anybody, uh, especially coming out of college. Oh yeah, 22, 23 years old. That's what I think so many people, at least online today, especially young men, I think are sold the, you need to become as rich as possible. Um, either you'll, you'll be ineligible on the dating market or whatever it is. And I think because of that, they're willing to take shortcuts that are, you know, for example, you know, e-commerce or drop shipping or all of these sort of online what I consider to be schemes or scams. And I think that, uh, you know, the 
the true way to amass wealth like that would be to solve a problem that people are willing to pay for your solution or do something better that no one's ever done before. Yeah. And I, I one of the things that came up uh, this week, actually, I was down at Georgia Tech talking to students and I was asking them in, in a class setting, like, you know, what are the blockers for you? I mean, the, the, are you aware of CreateX? Why aren't you doing a startup? A big, a big issue is the uh, short-term, hey, I need to intern so I can get $50 an hour. And the funny thing about that is I, I think we've got to do a better job communicating that I'm out of the box. When I do my investment, it's at a $5 million valuation. So the, And you're getting $25,000 right up front for the summer. That works out to about $50 an hour. And then on top of it, we've actually had quite a few startups uh, in the last year who've hit the, we, we have a milestone kind of pro progress where they've got the $500,000 uh, for their company. You know, there's a 10% equity, that's 5 million. And ultimately for them, for somebody who's interning for a large company, like a FANG kind of company, uh, 50 bucks an hour, that's 50 years to get to $5 million. So I'm seeing every day the students that do take the risk, even though I think it's a low risk, uh, they're actually getting to, a, they're basically uh, shortcutting the line to a $5 million company right off the bat. And many of them go on to have it valued much higher. Yeah, no, that's amazing. Uh, the culminating question about this, because I have so much stuff I want to cover, is if CreateX existed when you were thinking about pursuing ISS, do you think that you would have finished your degree? Uh, that's a good question. Pro probably uh, I actually um, took a break from Georgia Tech, and then I never went back to finish it, so I'm still technically on break. Oh, there you go. <laughs> you might go back one of these days. I know that you were recently given a honorary doctorate as well. From uh, I've not officially accepted it, but yes, I'll be uh, accepting it later next year. Very cool. Um, this is a question that I think many people are curious about because uh, – having not only something that a passion project turn into a unicorn or a billion dollar company, something that you were literally working on while you were a college student. Um, but when, cause IBM, uh, international business machines actually acquired ISS in 2006 for uh, the, according to the articles, $1.3 billion cash. And so I'm wondering like, as a human being, what does that what does that feel like when that deal goes through? Because uh, obviously, I'm sure that was a long time coming. Um, but that sort of is, a lot, in a lot of ways, the culmination. And so, I don't know, happy, relieved, didn't know what to feel. What does that feel like? Yeah, it's a good question. I think, um, you know, one, one of the things that when I started the company, the uh, to me, it was really to learn. Uh, and it wasn't with the goal of selling it in, in any specific time. I think... Uh, you know, we would always look at opportunities. The history of ISS from the beginning of internet security systems, we always had people offer to buy ISS. And uh, fortunately, uh, most of the offers were kind of valued at the time that we were uh, they were giving it. But we were like, if we keep working on this, our value kept kept double, doubling every year. So I was like, why sell now? Let's let's keep it going. Um, we ended up actually taking the company public, and so. Uh, the IPO for that was, you know, many years earlier than before it got acquired. So as a founder, that's probably the bigger mm. event in the history of ISS uh, to go from a private company to now we're on Wall Street. Now you can trade your shares. 
Um, and so most of your, or at least in my case, uh, the majority of like your wealth creation is really when you unlock and start selling and diversifying your your shares. So I think I think ISS getting acquired by IBM was more of felt to me like this was a natural part of the overall journey. I've seen it go from my grandmother's spare guest bedroom to getting 10 employees to hundreds to thousands, taking it public, being international, having offices around the world. Um, you know, very exciting time in my life. And then, uh, you know, I think IBM was a good fit for, for ISS. So it ended up being a great fit. And, um, I wanted to kind of give back to what got me going. And that's where I actually gave uh, stock from ISS to Georgia Tech. That was what I donated. And that stock got turned into a building. Yeah. Well, I think it's so cool because I think that many people um, may have no affiliation as well to their alma mater, if you want to, if you refer to Georgia Tech as that, um, because it maybe didn't serve the purposes for you at the time. And so I think that's awesome that you're still so involved and, uh, you know, do give back to Georgia Tech because many people in your position wouldn't. Um, so that's awesome. The IPO, that makes sense. I think that, uh, when you talk about a startup, I think that really is, you know, the first thing on people's mind of, okay, that's the dream, right? Take it public. That's right. Um, my question next uh, is a bit more about you specifically and a bit more um, fulfillment wise, because you are, are incredibly humble. Uh, I've known you for some time now, and yet you you have a, a amassed an amount of wealth that most people can barely conceive of or would dream of. And I'm wondering now, you know, so many odd years later, since you would have reached what m- many people would call ultimate financial freedom, how do you find fulfillment? How do you choose to spend your time? Um, because for many people, it is waking up and that's what they're hunting. They're hunting you know, mm. money or all the money in the world or whatever it is. Um, and so for someone who's quote unquote achieved that, what do you do? How do you decide to spend your days? It's uh, a great question. Um, I think there's parts of my journey that I think were helpful from even the beginning, uh, to try and make those decisions. Um, one of the things that I was fortunate, uh, having a family, uh, member that was into meditation, uh, teach me how to do that. And that, that actually is a a practice that I highly recommend anybody who's going to become a founder, or if you are a founder, one of the big challenges, especially in the younger generation is mental health. And I think, we're always on social media and trying to consume it and create it and everything else. And I think meditation's a, a chance for your brain to reset. And so I would I would probably say that's that's been very beneficial in making kind of a, a reflection of am I on the right journey? Am I making the right decision? So every decision I've made that was major, I always would meditate on it and kind of make sure I like I never had regrets because it was the best decision I could make at the time and the knowledge that I had to do what I did. So ultimately, um, that was a key part of it. And I think um, sense of purpose is a thing that I, I think I asked a lot of people, like, what's what's your purpose? And it's always interesting how many people are, like, still seeking, like, what is their purpose? And I, I feel blessed um, and grateful that I think through meditation uh, and kind of being on my own spiritual journey, 
a lot of it came from giving back and helping others and being grateful that I've had this very interesting path in life. And then how do I get more people to follow that path, give them the keys that I found that helped me be successful? How do I enable them? And I think I actually find that that's, it's more the giving to others that makes it, you know, the, the world a better place. Yeah, that's a great answer. I think that, um, I, I've thought about that question too. And, uh, the, the most succinctly I've put it is to give my friends and my family and those around me the best possible life I can give them. And that might mean monetarily. It might mean just being there. It might mean whatever it is. But if I'm a net positive to, uh, the people I care about and the, obviously the more wealth you amass, then the more you lives you can change with that. Um, but I think that as long as you're again, trying to create more of a positive income or like positive outcome for people around you, that's, that's at least how I find fulfillment as well. Yeah. Awesome. Which is part of the reason why I love talking to, you know, hundreds of thousands of people to, to just give advice, the things I've learned. Um, the other thing that I think is really interesting about you is, uh, still on the topic of like fulfillment is you do seem to be at least somewhat spontaneous when it comes to, uh, you know, for example, uh, hiking Kilimanjaro, which you did recently, which, um, I'm sure there was a lot of planning that went into it, but in the grand scheme of things, maybe not as much as some people who train for years, plan for years. And so I'm wondering how, and then you also joined us on our trip to Lebanon, uh, earlier this year, which I'm so glad you, you got to come see that. Um, but what, what are these, uh, other ways that you, do you feel like you are trying to, create in like an exciting life as well and making sure that you're able to find fulfillment in ways like that? Uh, you know, it's a good question. I, I, I think, uh, this year I was turning 50 and I was like, what do you do for a, as a 50 year old? And on my bucket list of things that I actually, I do a thing called mind mapping. I don't know if you've heard of mind have, mapping. Yeah. So I'm, I, I will sit there and kind of mind map like all my goals and, whatever I can think of. Right. And then Kilimanjaro has been one of those, uh, things on my list of, I should do that at some point. And, uh, you know, I think when I was turning 50 in September, I was like, I should do this now. And, uh, cause I was like, I'm I'll, otherwise I'll never do it. And, uh, fortunately I had a friend and, uh, a couple that I know that they timing wise, I met up with them and they're like, they're doing Kilimanjaro. I was like, I'm off by like a week or so. I was like, why don't we combine forces? And um, so ended up getting uh, uh, two other couples to go with us. And it it was probably the most challenging physical and mental uh, event in my life. Um, I realized that was probably my peak uh, climbing um, challenge. Um, I probably will not be doing Mount Everest or any other crazy peak ever because I found that, um, yeah, halfway through, I was like, what the heck did I just sign up for? How do I hit the eject button? (laughs) But by day four, you're half, it was seven days. So the climb, the mountain ended up by day five, you go to the summit starting at 11 PM, eight hours later through the dark, you can't see anything. Just looking up, there's blackness and just a little bit of headlamps ahead of you. You can see like almost like a Christmas tree lights up the mountain. And uh, 
I'm like falling asleep while still climbing. Uh, I ended up like, I think my only advice to my 20 year old self would be, uh, if you're going to do Kilimanjaro, do it in your twenties and thirties, but don't wait till you're 50. I was like, never breathed so hard in my life. And, uh, frozen but, snot to your face. <laughs> fro- you're freezing. You're like, what am I doing? And then the, but it's so rewarding though, because when the sun finally broke, you know, you're at the summit and, unbelievable view of the whole uh like you're in the clouds you're like if that's heaven you're only there for 20 minutes so and uh i brought my fusion flag and had uh us all kind of holding it up at at the summit and then it was it was awesome to come back down get some oxygen (laughs) yeah yeah is the is the summit is it like is there a v peak that is just the small patch of land that is the top there is, there, there's a sign. Yeah. yeah. Like you can't get any higher. You're, yeah. you're any higher. You're, uh, you're going to fall off the earth. So, uh, it was, it was pretty high. And, uh, but I was, I was blown away by all the people I met on the mountain and, uh, we ended up, um, doing the Serengeti and, uh, visiting Rwanda, Uganda, some of the countries nearby. And, um, I met a, so many young people there that also were trying to learn computer science and, and uh, I was like, look, if you guys get a startup going here, I'll invest. So there you uh, go. I think I got some future entrepreneurs going on in, uh, in East Africa. That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah, I think that uh, for someone who could, I think many people would assume that someone who likes to live as comfortably as possible to put yourself in pretty much the most extreme discomfort someone could do willingly, I think uh, sort of goes in the face in that. But it's also super cool that, uh, you know, you you choose to do that. Um my next question is we're talking about entrepreneurs all over the world and, uh, in, you know, whether it's East Africa or America, I think is where most people sort of just assume. And I'm currently living in Silicon Valley. That's the heart, right? Do you think that anyone can be as successful as you are? Do you think that there are certain qualities that are are sort of prerequisites, um, whether that's hardworking? And then lastly, how much do you think luck plays a role in uh, success uh, in sort of the most extreme degree? It's a good question. Um, I do think luck plays out in many forms. I felt lucky because I was like, what are the chances of me going to Georgia Tech, me working on an interesting hobby that ended up turning into a big problem around the world um, with with cybersecurity. Um, so I definitely I feel grateful because of feeling lucky. And I always once you get on a mission, you kind of those as you tell others about it, you end up finding others that want to join you. So it's it's kind of like what you put out, you're, you'll get in return. So I think it's um, back to the your core question though is you know is it is it something that could be replicated? Um, and, and reduce complete luckiness. And is there a pattern that you could do to say, hey, how do you turn um, an idea into, and materialize it into a real company? Um, I've actually spent a lot of time not only thinking about it, but doing the analysis on what makes up a unicorn. Um, and we're actually helping students kind of rethink their vision. You know, they may have a mission that they're trying to solve this problem. Is there ways to help you turn it into a unicorn? And so some some high-level things is typically if you look at the most unicorns in the last 10, 20 years, they tend to be technology companies, right? And so 
one of the things that we're starting to put in place as we're funding a lot of these student startups is in that team of co-founders, uh, they don't all have to be technical, but somebody has to be technical. And so we're, we're uh, kind of going back to say, I think for a technology startup, you really need, like, op- if you were going to open a restaurant, you need a chef. You need the same thing with a, a builder who can build the technology, which is, so if you're going to build a, a startup, that will be a big thing. Another big factor, I think, in success is how big is that problem? How big is the market? You know, if, if, if you're solving it and only, you know, 100 potential customers exist, then it's never going to be a unicorn. And this is why I would not recommend uh, if you're there's there's lifestyle businesses or hobby type businesses. There's a lot of like Main Street businesses that will never really become unicorns. We're looking for helping students think outside that box to say, hey, is this a problem that goes beyond even the U.S. borders does it impact, you know, Latin America, Asia, Europe? If you have that kind of a problem, uh, then you can you can scale infinitely. And so that's kind of the global mindset we're looking for: is a global mindset, ambition to scale, big problem, a technical co-founder, hopefully a solution. I think AI and software. I think those pieces together, you're going to see a lot of startups become unicorns over the next five, 10, 20 years. Oh, absolutely. That's so much great advice in such a short amount of time. Um, something about that is, are there certain qualities that you look for in a founder that you think either are conducive to success or arguably uh, working against them, whether it's arrogance or blistering, you know, unbridled confidence, right? Uh, I think that those can kind of blur the lines, but some might say, you know, you need to have so much belief that you won't fail that in the face of adversity, you won't, or some might say that, you know, you'll become stupid and blindsided by very real problems that you ignored. Um, I don't, you know, it's a good question. I, I think, uh, somebody on a team has to be technically confident that they can actually build the prototype, get it up, hopefully, uh, be able to listen. That's a, that's probably a quality that not everybody has, but it's something that if you're going to be a founder, you need to listen to customers, you got to listen to your team. Um, so I think having that, um, I think that's something you can learn. I don't think it's a human trait as much as take a breath, listen for what are they actually saying and what does that really mean. And and a lot of times customers are maybe having, uh, they might think they have the solution for you, but you may need to dig back, dig into what is the real pain point. Um, so I, I don't, you know, I don't, I'll be honest. I think if you looked at a lot of the founders that have been successful that I've funded, we're really looking for people that can build. Um, I would actually say many of them would have traits that you would not probably label as, oh, that that's an entrepreneur trait. I don't know if that really exists. I see such a variety. Um, there's some skill sets you need. I think communication, if you're going to be the CEO, if you're going to be the CTO, can you build what you're going to build? And that still also requires communication. Um, so can you communicate? Can you build it? Can you listen? I mean, those are some basic things that you have to be able to do. I do think there's red flags. I, I have seen founders that um, – so several big red flags that I would say. One is uh, BSing people, you know, mm-hmm. overselling it. And if you're talking to somebody who else is technical enough to – peel back the onion, 
you know, they're going to see that uh, what's the reality of what you're doing. I think um, the other thing that I see with a lot of founders early on, uh, usually they over they're they're so nervous about is their idea big enough. And the problem with that a lot of times is they end up going, here's five different problems that are all kind of related. And here's 10 other solutions. And you're like, all right, that's too many solutions to build. You need to just, what's the number one thing you got to build for what problem and simplify it down, especially as a small company. And um, you don't want too many, you, you can't be that unfocused. You have to focus on, this is the message, this is the problem, and these are the customers we're going to target. That's awesome. Yeah, I think that the solve everything approach is definitely a, a, a beginner uh, mistake that I saw even in my CreateX group, that's something that we dealt with is trying to take on way too much, way too fast. The next question I want to ask you is still about entrepreneurship, but I think that many people don't realize, especially because most of my audience is roughly in like the, let's say 15 to 25, some up to like 30, but young, primarily males, but young people. And uh, my generation doesn't really realize that entrepreneurship and startups and this thing, it was not as cool as it is today. For example, when you were building your company, you did not have all of the people either online to look at for motivation, but also for ideas, for education. And so uh, my question is, what do you think is being spewed in terms of information on when it comes to entrepreneurship that you actually disagree with? Like what you see the advice that's online all the time about, because sure. it's such a cool topic to talk about now. Uh, what do you think is advice that you disagree with? And then what do you think is not said enough? For sure. Um, that's a really great question. I, it, interestingly, I was at a Georgia tech class this week asking students, why aren't you doing a startup? Number one blocker. And I, I might, this was at Georgia tech, but I believe this is applicable to every university possibly in the world except one. Um, and I think, and I got feedback on one, which was Stanford, where every student at Stanford is talking about startups. There's no one talking about how to get a job at some large company like Google or Meta or whatever. It's like, what is your startup? And so that's the culture that I think needs to change. And so when you when I was talking, like, what's the blocker for you guys building a startup? They're like, none of our peers are talking about startups. They, we're, we're being hammered with, where are you going to intern? Which fang are you going to work for? And I think that psychology of, like, you have to go work for a large company really is pervasive. And I've talked to a lot of students. I'm like, why are you going to go work for a large company? And it's like, oh, that's how I get my business experience. It's actually counterproductive to go work for a large company because usually in a large company, the big problem has been solved. So the any new employees get kind of a very narrow job focus within a large company. You don't wear a lot of hats. You're wearing one hat to do one thing within that company. That's totally counter to what a startup is. You got to wear every hat. Every day you're like, your customer support, your building, your selling, your marketing, your HR, everything. And so to me, and you got to execute fast. And I'd say for probably 90 plus percent of most large companies, executing fast is not a concept. And so I think um, that's that's the stuff that I hear that even today when I talk to students, like what's stopping you? 
I think culture, being aware that's even that there is a startup ecosystem. Like even even when I was there, I was like, did you know there's a student club dedicated to startups? And like half the class had no idea. And I'm like, I just I just make we all make assumptions that are in there in the in when you're in the community that everybody knows about it. But then if you take a bunch of random people, you know, students and ask them like, oh, did you know about this club or that club and this stuff going on? They have no idea. So I think what you're doing is uh, creating more awareness for others to go, hey, I never considered doing a startup. What are what's the path? And I'm my guess is every every campus in this country probably does have a student club for startups. There are probably already resources, but you have to go hunt them down and figure out where they are and which faculty and what other students are doing it. So I, I, that's the narrative that I would love to see shift because this is a unique time to go figure out what you're passionate about, find purpose, go solve a real problem. And there's, you know, enough problems in the world as we know. So, you know, I would love to love to help fund more startups solving today's problems. Absolutely. I think that there is somewhat what your comment on the joining a big company. I think that there is a, a lot of people, especially around that age that have a bit of an identity problem and there can be kind of an in-group out-group sort of idea that, Hey, I'm going to go work at the big company because that's what'll make me cool or successful. Okay. And, um, the, you know, fear of failure, I think it is really big. Obviously I think that there is no excuse now in terms of, uh, not having the information because again, anyone has access to it. So if you're truly interested in it to go pursue it, um, I don't think that, for example, an excuse that you could have used in your time, which is like, if I want to figure out how to do this thing, I kind of got to do it myself or work really hard to network. Whereas I think today it's a lot easier to do that. But I do think that there's probably people who are like, whether it's parents or friends or whatever, oh, if I don't work at one of the big four consulting firms, then what was the point of my degree? I want to hit on something you you just talked about, which was uh, fear of failure. Um, one of the that that is a something that I saw a lot when we were having that conversation. Where am I? Am I technical enough? Even though they were able to code, am I technically capable of doing a startup? And I'm like, you know, or or is my idea technically good enough? Or you know, what happens if it doesn't? It fails. Uh, and I want to I want to stress that. Almost all of my startup teams that I've seen go through this whole process. Once they get on the, 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 you know, going out there trying to talk to customers, figure out their pain points, the vast majority of them end up realizing their their startup idea originally is a failure idea. Meaning it's okay. You know what they do? They pivot. They they go okay. Now that I'm talking to some customers, I realize this idea is not good. That's okay. There's no shame in failure. It's an idea. You're not a failure. Maybe the assumptions you had were a failure. But I tell all the teams, I'm backing the team. It's okay to pivot. I want you to pivot to bigger and better ideas. Do not get stuck thinking I'm, I have to die with this failure. And I really want uh, young entrepreneurs to embrace the failure because that's where you learn. I mean, and, and I, I think maybe for, for me, it helps to frame it as an experiment. I'm always like, do this experiment, figure out if this works, because that's how you learn from your experiments. And if a startup is a failure, that's okay. You're going to pivot. You'll come up with other ideas. And I think everybody that has, I'd say the almost like 95% of all the startups, very rarely get all the assumptions right. They're almost 
you're making pivots every day. And I, even my own company, when I was going through, I was like, as long as I'm batting more than 50%, I'm probably beating my competition. And I, I was like, because we are failing all the time on doing different things, but you learn, you adjust, you tweak. And I, I would I would say today's society, there's a real uh, fear of failing and I'm not going to have my good grades or what happens if I drop out of school. That's another area that we're trying to address is like, you're not dropping out of school. Maybe you're taking a sabbatical to go try your startup and the nice thing about schools like Georgia Tech, let's say you, you try your startup, it doesn't work out. You realize it's it's not going to be the big success you wanted. That's okay. You can always go back to Georgia Tech. That was the thing that gave me confidence was when I called admissions and I said, "How good are my how long are my credits good for?" They said ten years. I was like, "Man, if I don't know whether I'll be a success in ten years, I've got other problems." So, you know, that gave me. I guess, 10-year runway to figure out whether my first company would be a success. And I, I think more students have to have, like, embrace the failure, um, but realize maybe it's not cut out for them. Yeah, I think that's so beautifully put. I think that uh, any time that you, I actually made a video on this somewhat this morning, um, that if you want different results, right, if you want to be someone who's special or accomplish something that most people don't, by definition, you're going to have to do things that most people don't, and that's going to be uncomfortable. And to and I'm saying this as someone who thus far in my life has taken the very, very safe path, right? Even though I'm on social media is not the most risky thing I've done, but it's not the even that risky in the grand scheme of things, right? I do work a nine to five. I did finish my degree. Um, when are you doing a startup? <laughs> working on it, working on it. Uh, hopefully soon. But um, I think that, yeah, many people, it is the discomfort of not even necessarily failing, but the prospect of failing. Cause I think that once, um, I even, it's a weird analogy to make, but I even, um, will see it kind of like dating or approaching someone, right? There's a risk that you'll get rejected. Right. Um, uh, but you'll realize that, and this would be analogous to failing a startup. There's a, you'll realize that life moves on. You're not going to die. And so, uh, I think that it's, it's something that it, you can train your brain almost to, push yourself into the discomfort and realize, okay, uh, I'm still here. I still woke up the next morning. Now what? <laughs> That's right. That's right. Actually, and I, I just chatted uh, recently at a table where uh, head of Apple research, she was there and she manages the AR VR headset. And we were talking to some students and we were on the topic of, you know, is a startup a good thing? What happens if you fail and you have to go get a job at Apple she goes, I love looking at resumes where they did do a startup because it really shows that they're willing to take some risk, talk to customers, learn that. And so in her mind, spending the summer working on a startup was a huge plus and makes you stand out. So it's another, even if you want to go into more of your traditional large technology companies, I think doing a startup is a great stepping stone to getting there. Yeah. Yeah, we, we've talked a lot about entrepreneurship. Um, a topic that I talk about a lot on my platform, and I don't know if how you're familiar with it, is uh, the notion of the sort of the modern side hustle um, and what I would actually consider to be somewhat of a bastardization of entrepreneurship because whether it is, you know, drop shipping or Amazon FBA or, uh, you know, even something like crypto trading that they think they, you know, have a, a method, um, and so I think that 
I'm curious your thoughts on what people would say. I am an entrepreneur uh, if I am working for myself and making money and it's different from startups, but essentially in my opinion, there's no problem they're solving there. They're sort of, they're trying to shim money from somewhere in the system and they might do it successfully. Sure. Uh, but I'm wondering if you have any, I'm just going to throw that at you and see if you have anything to stick on. And if not, we can move on. How do you want to frame, what's the question about it? Um, do you think that there is a real, how would you define entrepreneurship and would you consider someone uh, who would say, oh, you know, I'm uh, drop shipping and I'm getting a market or a item to a customer. Uh, therefore, I'm a, I'm like you and I'm, a, I'm an entrepreneur. Would you? Yeah, def- I think by definition, entrepreneurs are people who start some kind of business, um, you know, and if it's a side hustle kind of business, uh, you're creating T-shirts or whatever you're building on the side. I think I think it's still entrepreneurship. I do think uh, the potential can always be greater because if it's only, you know, you're never going to have a major successful company if it's a side hustle. And so if you can think about possibly using it to shift into something bigger, I would definitely recommend that. In fact, I've seen uh, there's at least uh, one or two of the startups that I have funded, their background, the founder's background was drop ship. So they knew how to do the marketing. Uh, you know, and I, a, a good example is dot card, you know, dot card. I'm very, yeah, I'm good friends with Jeff. Actually. Yeah. So Jeff's the CEO and he, his background is he was hanging out doing, uh, some drop shipping with some, some friends of his. And he was like, now that I'm doing this startup, he leveraged that into a full-time, uh, multi-million dollar business. And if you haven't gotten a dot card, check it out. Once yeah, you can- Google it, you'll see it. And, uh, Please, please buy a dot card. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I haven't spoken to Jeff in a minute. I'll have to hit him up. Um, and, and you brought up something that reminded me because we were talking about failure. And um, have you heard the like the burn the boats story? Um, essentially, it, it talks. It's a philosophical idea. I think it comes from some I don't know mythical story. Essentially, that uh, going into battle and burning the boats so you have no way home. And so essentially like putting, uh, you know, putting all your eggs in one basket or putting yourself where failure is not an option. If you ever hear that one, failure is not an option. I'm wondering if you have any opinions on that of uh, essentially people thinking, especially when it comes to entrepreneurship, that they have to give themselves no backup plan. Otherwise they won't succeed. If you have a plan B, you're planning for your plan A to fail, right? All of these things are things I hear online a lot. Sure. I, I, it's a good question. I think um, from my perspective, um, it's probably one of the reasons why I, I am targeting students is they're, they're uh, burning the boat is that they have to sleep on a couch or some parent's house or whatever, wherever, or their friend's house. It's not a big deal. Um, I think what I do see, though, that people should think about is uh, if they do have a job. I've seen where people are like, hey, I'm working at it an Apple or Amazon and I'm trying to get my startup going, would you fund me? One of the things that we have a very frank conversation with is for me to fund you of any sizable amount, that money is going to go, it's really, I'm betting on you, your team, your, your time, your focus, et cetera. And so an investor who wants to go back a startup, they want to see a founder who's willing to if you want to call it burning the boat or just becoming a hundred percent focus and try to remove as many distractions. 
um, that they can off their plate so they can make sure that if there's – because at the end of the day, the startups that are most successful are the ones that are executing the fastest, the ones that are working on their problem, building the product faster than anybody else, that are solving the problem, getting more customers, getting more funding, scaling the business. You can't do that as a side hustle. And there's, you know, hopefully you can buy a big boat like Bezos later on. <laughs> but while you're still rowing a little boat, you need to be all in on your little boat. Yeah, I think that's great. I think that's great advice as well. Just it makes sense, right? That as a someone who's investing in a company, you want to know that the thing you're investing in, uh, they have your full attention and commitment to that thing. Otherwise, it's like if you don't even believe in the thing, why should I believe in the thing? Hundred percent. Yep. Uh, we're, we're getting close to the end here. I want to ask a little bit more about you just so people can get a little bit more about you in terms of, you know, you're clearly so passionate about entrepreneurship, which is something that I think we share. And maybe I haven't acted so much on that yet, but you know, I have, I have some years, but, um, what, what would, what are your passions? What are your hobbies? Um, just a little bit more about you beyond just the, the entrepreneur, philanthropist, angel investor. Sure. I, and it's a great question. Here's an interesting exercise. Um, I'll ask you a question, uh, kind of help uh, pull it out. But I think uh, if you had to define yourself of who you are and everything about you into one word, what what word would you choose to pick for who you a are? A single word? Yeah. <clears throat> and it's like a title. I would probably say- Not a title, it's yeah, just a word. Okay. You, uh, it's just- if you could think of like what's your whole being and what you're known for, or what you want to be known for, it's yeah. Like, can you sum yourself up in a word? Yeah, uh, I would probably say motivated, in the sense that I'm someone who uh, genuinely enjoys uh, whether it is improving myself in the gym or doing like a, a my project of social media or at work at my job, even in the classroom. Um, I'm someone who actually does find a lot of intrinsic motivation in the actual work. Yes. And so that's why I think I'll never retire in the most traditional sense. And so uh, that's what I, I'm someone who likes work for the sake of work, as long as I enjoy the work that I'm doing. Hence you're motivated. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess for myself, somebody asked me that and I was like, that's a really great question. And I had to think about it and creativity was my word. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, it's something that as a kid, I, I was, Dabbling in uh, doing art art projects, um, I like being creative, especially on the computer. I would do a lot of video game kind of creation. That's actually got what got me into coding was to make a video game. And why? Because I thought it was fun and be cool to see the special effects and you're shooting monsters and whatever else that you're doing in the game. And um, you know, ultimately, I think that's been one of my core areas that I like solving problems. Creativity is one of those areas where, um, you know, give me a canvas and a problem and I like drawing that stuff out. So I, I, I think beyond uh, technology startups, there's there's areas that I think the world needs in addition to solving whatever major technical problems. But also, um, I would say uh, I think there's opportunities to uh, help the world through. There's two other areas that I'm, I'm very interested in. One is politics, um, maybe because I'm getting older. And, but I, I would love to see the new generation get in, not just be on social media and outraged by what's happening in the world, but also like 
how do you impact change? And I think one of the things that's missing is I don't think a lot of kids or the general public is it's almost like an entrepreneur. It's very rare to find entrepreneurs. It's very rare to figure out how do you get in and make change at a political level. And that's one of the areas that I'm I'm very interested in because I I think so many young kids have great ideas of here's what our policy should be and it's completely opposite of what it has been and you've got this this uh overwhelming like how do I even move I, I I'm yelling into the wind, you know, type problem. And I think I think I think there's solutions out there where people could be more effective in grassroots activities and targeting the right politicians or how do you become a, a citizen, you know, a leader in the community. Um, that's an area that I'm very interested in. And uh, I'll say the third area that I'm, I'm very interested in is I grew up um, Catholic. Um, but I think as I studied science and all that, one of the areas I'm very interested in is I'm working on a religion that's called open belief. And the idea there is I want kind of an evidence-based religion that's based on not just faith because some books said something, but it's more, give me the data, show me how this is backed up by some evidence. And so I really want to um, create kind of a community of people that are respectful, open to new beliefs, but also willing, you know, but it needs to be ultimately backed by some evidence. And because we all have different ideas. And I think I've always been um, a fan of the golden rule, treat others how you want to be treated. And I think uh, in most cases, I've, I've, I've been very fortunate to travel the world, some with you, some with, you know, just on my business and going to Latin America or Asia. Um, everybody wants to do good and wants to see good outcomes. And I think we need to be able to remove some of the labels that are keeping us apart. Because I think when you talk to people from on different sides of some of these conflicts that we're seeing in the world, you realize the actual people just want to have peace, solve real problems together, make the world better. And I think uh, it's to it's I think uh, in many cases we could do better. And so I, I want to create something called open belief that um, is more evidence based. Chris, that's an awesome answer. And uh, I want to conclude the conversations there because I think you wrapped it up beautifully. My last question to you is, do you have any projects or anything that you would like to make broadly known, blasted to the world? If not, that's okay. But if you have particular things that you want people to go look out for, now would be the time to let them know. Sure. I think based on what you said, who your audience is, uh, definitely try, if you, if you want to try entrepreneurship, um, I'll provide a link with Carter to, to uh, join Fusion. That's the platform I'm building. It's going to be a community around entrepreneurs and founders. But I'm also baking into that basically mentors, investors, and I also am going to bring in creators because I really think there's a ton of stories that are happening amongst all these founders that are building really cool uh companies that are solving major major issues and they don't know how they don't know who the creators are and i also talk to creators and i'm like you guys should be talking to these guys so i'm going to try to blend creators and founders and and if you need money let me know because 
we'll fund you. Awesome. Thank you so much. And we'll put all those links in the description below. Uh, this is a relationship that I care so much about. So I'm happy to be able to share it with the, the people who I, you know, talk to on a daily basis. And I look forward to future conversations. Thank you so much awesome. for doing this. Thank you, Carr. Appreciate it. All right.